This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-wy-giving. Matthew chapter 8. So well, I thought the Sermon on the Mount ended with chapter 7. Yes, it did. But he taught far more. Jesus taught far more than just the Sermon on the Mount. There's quite a bit of, of teaching to be found throughout the Gospels. So it seemed good to just stay right where we were. And then rather than skipping, just blowing past what some might call his incidental teachings, okay? Well, why not glean from those as well? Every word of Christ was a profound statement here, the words of Christ. And while some of them don't necessarily carry a, a deep theological teaching, you know, where he, where he might have been not commiserating, but he might have been, you know, just speaking with, communicating with, or strategizing or planning with his disciples, there's a lot to be extracted from even what may be considered his incidental teachings. This was Jesus. This is Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of the human race, as many as believe on him. So it seems good, it seemed good that we continue on into chapter 8. Now it's the dynamic of the teachings is going to change a little bit because we had three concentrated chapters of Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it was like literally solid red ink, almost completely solid red ink from chapters 5 through the end, right up to almost the end of chapter 7. And so it's going to take on a little bit more of a historical narrative, and we're going to talk a little bit about more about the episodes that brought that brought about his teachings or the episodes that he was teaching in. So the pacing will change a little bit, but let's just pick up where we left off. So chapter eight, beginning in verse one, when he was come down from the mountain. Okay, so this is right after he's concluded his Sermon on the Mount. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Well, why did they do that? Well, because frankly, they just had their minds blown by three chapters of amazing stuff they had never heard before. You ever heard anybody teach or, or, or talk about something that had so opened your eyes and so seemed to enlighten you about life or about yourself or about the world or about anything at all that you just hung on their every word? Well, that's exactly what had happened with Jesus. It's exactly what had happened with Jesus. He had so, I don't want to say mesmerized them because that implies a dulling of their mind. He had enlightened them. He had enlightened them. That's not the same as saving. All right, salvation and enlightenment, they're not the same thing. Enlightenment is entirely a phenomenon of the mind, okay? When light has been shined or shown upon your understanding and you see with clear eyes and understand something that you did not previously understand before. Well, these people had been enlightened either to a greater or a lesser degree by Jesus's teaching and by his authority and by his, and forgive this term if it's not quite the best term, his expertise. And he was an expert where the word of God was concerned because he was the word incarnate. He was the living and remains the living word of God. 
So he comes down off the mountain now in verse 1. Great multitudes followed him because they wanted more. There was an appetite there. Because when you have an appetite for something, you want more of it. And you want more of it. These folks had an appetite. They had an appetite for the word. They had an appetite for what Jesus had to say. And so they followed him. And behold, verse 2, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So short paragraph, four short verses, but there's a lot we can extract out of this. Now, there's the surface level, which is what you get when you're usually reading and not necessarily studying. You're just kind of cruising along and, and reading and getting the narrative into your head. It's a good thing to do. I'm not criticizing that, but it's also good to sit and chew on these things. I think it was either Oswald Chambers or a notable believer from the last hundred years made the statement or last 150 years or so made the statement. We've shared it before, said, meditate on the scriptures, brethren, meditate on them, but these grapes will yield no wine until they are pressed. I really liked the sound of that. And I wasn't talking about the stuff that makes you drunk. It was grape juice is what he's talking about, or whatever it was, whatever context he was using. The point is, you're not going to get any juice out of those things until you press them. And so the deeper meanings and the, the deeper implications and the things that really kind of rock you is profound. They don't really come out unless you're really trying to concentrate and think on these things and let them speak to your heart. So the, at the surface level, we see, okay, that's cool. Our Lord cleansed a leper. Well, what's a leper? A leper was somebody that was afflicted with a rather horrible terminal disease. Leprosy is awful. It's a terrible way to live and it's a terrible way to die. It's a rotting disease. It causes your, your flesh to die while it's on you, while you're still alive. You know, parts of you start to rot and fall away. Lepers lose their extremities. They lose fingers and they lose arms, legs, then parts of their... I mean, it's really a, a horrible, horrible disease. And it was very, very common up until about... Uh, up until about the Industrial Revolution, that's a pretty wide approximation of time. And in adv recent advances in medicine over the last 100, 150 years or so has seen almost a complete eradication of that disease from developed nations, okay? Well, this was a guy who wasn't there. This was a guy who had the disease and it was killing him, all right? You don't, you don't usually... When you had leprosy in those days, it was generally a death sentence. So along comes this leper, this man who is afflicted, and he's in bad shape, and it is highly contagious. It is contact contagious, okay? So you touch a leper, you run the risk of contracting leprosy. I don't know how contagious it is, but it's contagious enough you don't want them around. And that's why lepers were frequently cast out of their communities and put in what are called leper colonies where, well, they're all sick with the disease so they can live together. It's not like they have to worry about contagion. So a leper comes along and worships him saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Now here's a demonstration of faith. That's right off the bat. Okay. And Jesus put forth his hand. Now that's deadly dangerous right there. But what was Jesus concerned about? Jesus wasn't concerned about contracting leprosy. 
So Jesus putting forth his hand, being God, the son of God, put forth his hand to touch this leper, touching him, saying, I will be thou clean. Now, this brings something up. Because there's a couple different kinds of faith at work here that a person can have. And that's faith in God's ability versus faith in God's willingness. Those are two different things. There are lots of people that have complete faith in God's ability to heal or to work a miracle or to do anything, but they're doubtful as to whether or not he's willing. Have you ever been like that? I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot, but there are lots of people that are doubtful of God's willingness. Well, I know God can. I just don't know if he will. Well, why not? Why not? I mean, who is this guy? This wasn't some, uh, this, this was just some guy. We don't even know his, we don't even know his name. He isn't even, his name isn't even revealed to us. This was someone's son. This was perhaps someone's father. This was someone's husband, maybe. But as far as who he is, for all we know, he was just some guy, no one extraordinary. He wasn't some notable statesman. He wasn't someone famous. He wasn't an he wasn't from Hollywood, praise God. He probably wouldn't have had uh, the faith to approach Jesus if he was. But this was just some guy. But he was some guy who believed that Jesus was someone who could solve his problem. And that's the first thing that Jesus has to be to any of us. Okay? Before we believed, we had, or before we believed on him, we had to at least recognize and believe that he is the son of God and he's someone that can help us out with whatever our problem is. Some people come to Jesus not, not the first time. They don't come to him with uh, the problem of their sin. They come to him with something that's uh, uh, much more preeminent in their life. Does that make sense? They come to Jesus because they got a problem in their family. They come to Jesus because their marriage is falling apart. They come to Jesus because they're sick or because uh, they're desperate. They're, they're impoverished. They don't have a job. They need money. I mean, there's some kind of a natural carnal circumstance that drives them to the cross. And then once at the cross, they understand their deeper need. Whoa, this is a lot bigger than my marriage, my family, my job, my money. This is a lot bigger. There's a much bigger problem in my life, and that's sin. That's I'm lost. That's I'm a broken person on a profound spiritual level, and I need something a whole lot bigger than money, a job, or a restored marriage, or anything like that. I need salvation. And so that's, that's another example of enlightenment. They need that. But this man, this leper, coming to him with this very natural and understandable need, believed both that he could and that maybe he would. There's that maybe in there. Because look at his language, okay? It's all about the language, isn't it? It's all about the language. He says, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He was submitting to Jesus's sovereignty. Even if he doesn't heal me, I'll still worship him. And nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? Really, there's a big lesson in there. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. There's people that won't even ask for healing because they have been taught to think that healing was done away with. That God does not perform miracles anymore. They've been taught, and many of them have been taught even in churches, to believe that 
All of that was just for the time of Jesus. All of that was just for the time of the apostles, just for the beginning of the Christian church. They needed a little bit of oomph to kickstart this thing so that people would believe. And then after the church began, there was no need for it anymore. Baloney. Human beings are human beings in every single age, aren't they? And are we not, fundamentally speaking, are we as a race, are we still, are we not still the same ever since the fall? I'm talking about all of us, the human race. I'm not talking about born-again believers necessarily. We have been changed, but we've been changed by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. Amen? Okay? But the human race has remained fundamentally unchanged ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. We've been born in sin, shaped in iniquity, iniquity, excuse me, struggling with all the, the same battles that are common to the human race and always have been all the way up until now. If you took away our technology and electricity, we'd be right back to where we were 200 years ago. It's just that one innovation, believe it or not, that one major innovation that separates us from much more primitive times. So here comes this leper. If thou canst, thou can make me clean. What did Jesus say? I will. Be thou clean. So if this leper, who was not a born-again Christian, he was simply a Jew under the law, like everyone else Jesus was preaching to and teaching during that time, because Jesus had not yet died, and therefore the sacrifice had not yet been paid, and so the change of heart that comes with conversion to Christ was not yet possible. This was just some guy with a very real need, but he did the right thing. He did the rightest thing he could possibly do, and that was come to Jesus believing. And Jesus honored that faith. And then he says in verse 4, because there's, there's more to this. There's more to this. Well, excuse me. Verse 3 said, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The disease was gone. It was driven out from him. He was made a healthy man again. He wasn't necessarily made whole. There's a distinction there. Leprosy, as we mentioned, we talked about a bit about it. You lose your extremities. Parts of you die and fall off, okay? So to be made whole would have been to have anything that he might have lost restored. That's different from being healed. Being healed is the disease and the affliction has been cast out, driven out, and then any wounds and open, you know, open wounds and sores in your body from the disease would have been healed up just like that. But if you know he'd lost an arm, he was still stumpy. He was still missing an arm. And I bring that up for a reason because there was another. There's another episode here in the Gospels of lepers that Jesus cleansed several of them at once. They all ran off happy as clams, and that's good. One man turned back to come back to Jesus to thank him. And there's a whole lesson in that, because that man, Jesus, then restored him and made him every whit whole. You'll remember that episode from the Gospels. Only that one out of that whole group of lepers that were healed, only one was made completely whole and had his missing limbs restored or whatever it was he may have lost. So he says, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man. There was a reason for that. Jesus was still keeping things comparatively down low as far as the miracles and things like that. But he said unto him, Show thyself. He says, Go thy way. Show thyself to the priest. 
and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Jesus was requiring this Jew, a fellow Jew who was under the law, he was requiring him to respect the law of Moses and do what the law of Moses commanded him to do. Now that's not an example to us necessarily because we're not Jews under the law. So I'm not trying to take that and turn it into an application to us that we need to still respect the law of Moses and do those things that are under the law of Moses. That's not what I'm trying to, to, to convey with this. He was telling this man because that man was still a Jew under the law. The law had not yet been fulfilled by Jesus's um, trial, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. All of that, which is what we're getting ready to celebrate in a couple of weeks. Amen? But he was telling him to do it in the last the last part of the sentence here he says for a testimony not because his healing was in any way contingent upon his obeying the law of Moses his healing came to him by way of his faith in God through Jesus Christ that's where the healing came from he came to God believing and asking or to Jesus believing and asking and Jesus answering that faith with a healing touch and boom, he was healed right away. But for a testimony's sake, he says, go, to, go and show yourself to the priest because there was a lot in the law that dealt with the disease of leprosy because it was such a devastating illness and it could, it could spread and it, could, it, could, it was bad business. He says, go and show thyself to the priest and then offer the gift that Moses commanded. So Jesus was not superseding the law. He was not dismantling the law, tearing it down as people earlier in, in the gospel were concerned that he was going to do. He said he didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. And he even went forth. So if you'll remember back there, I believe in chapter five, he says, think not that I'm come to destroy the law. And he went on to say that not one jot or tittle, not one period or comma or dot of an eye or whatever is going to pass away from the law till all be fulfilled. So he's very careful to, to, to keep that in place here in verse four. He tells them to go show himself to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Now, let's move on from that. Verse 5, new paragraph. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. The centurion hadn't even asked yet. It's little things like this that reveal the character of our Lord to us full of mercy, not even requiring that a man would ask him. This was just, this was, in fact, as far as the pecking order of things went, in terms of people that were alive in that day, this man wasn't even as the leper was. The leper was closer to the privileges of God and the rights and the oracles of God than the centurion was. Why? Because the leper was a Jew. It was one of the children of Abraham of God's own chosen nation, Israel. But along comes the centurion, a Gentile, who has no claim whatsoever to the rights or to the privileges of being um, part of the people of God, the chosen people of God, God's chosen nation, the Israelites, the Jews, none of that. There's no mention of him being a Jewish or a convert to Judaism. 
He, in fact, he was a soldier in an occupying military force that occupied Israel at this time. So as far as the pecking order of who's closest to God, he was pretty far down the chain. In fact, he was just about all the way down the chain. Are you following? I'm bringing this up for a reason, okay? Because he came to God, he came to Jesus with the same kind of faith that the leper did. Let's read again. He said, Lord, so right off the bat, he's acknowledging Jesus's rank. He's acknowledging Jesus's authority and his sovereignty. Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. That's compassion. That's real compassion. That's not social justice warrior compassion. That's so much hypocritical lie. That, that, is so, that is so much hypocrisy. Okay? But Jesus' compassion is genuine. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to put together a task force and organize a protest and demand palsy control. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We're going to have a school walkout to protest your servant's palsy. We're going to set up websites and open up a GoFundMe or something like that. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus was not about empty gestures. He didn't change his profile picture on Facebook, you know, to have some palsy awareness image, you know, filter over his picture. Give me a break. That, that junk is so hollow so, so many times. Not all the time. Sometimes it's genuine and the sentiment can be appreciated, but it's cheap and it's easy. It doesn't cost you anything at all. It doesn't even cost the effort to take two minutes away from our busy schedules, get on our knees before God and pray for someone. It is better to pray for someone. It is better to pray for that school down in Florida or that other one that just happened this morning that, that, that an employee at that school stopped. And I think there were no deaths. There were some injuries, but there were no deaths. That's the last that I read anyway. Okay? It is better to pray for the people involved in that sort of thing than to just hop on social media and toss out that cheap, empty, easy comment, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Atheists just jump all over that and tear it to shreds. I'm not saying it's bad or it's wrong to do that. I'm just saying it's better and more profitable to pray for people. And it costs a little bit more too cost more than just a few easy keystrokes. Let's be people of prayer. Anyway, a quick diversion ties into this loosely. Lord, my servant lieth at home. He's sick. He's grievously tormented. Jesus in his genuine compassion, the kind of compassion that drove him to the cross to die for us. Show me how many social justice warriors out there are willing to do that. You really believe in your cause? Huh? You really believe in that cause? You're really willing to lay down your life for it? Most of them won't. They'll flee like rats on a ship if it actually comes down to that. He says, I'll come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. And he meant it. He meant it. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Whoa. What kind of faith is this? And then he goes on to explain, for I am a man under authority, which he was. He was a centurion. That was a high-ranking military officer right there. 
that they, uh, they, they commanded companies of men. Centurions, I believe, commanded companies of hundreds originally, although I think that mutated later on. I think they commanded companies of a thousand, but they still kept the name Centurion, which implied hundred, whatever, that's, that's trivia. But he said, I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed. In other words, the people that were following that great multitude that had followed Jesus off the mountain. He turned, here's the centurion, Jesus talking with the centurion, then turns around and addresses all the people following him. And he says this, and this is kind of, I don't know if it was barbed or kind of a, a two-edged statement, but he said this, verse 10, verily, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith no, not in Israel. Ouch. Here was a Gentile military officer oppressing the Jews or part of the, the military force that was keeping the, 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 the Jews, the nation of Israel, keeping them under the heel of the Roman emperor. Coming to Jesus with a greater faith than any of Jesus' own people. That's what Jesus was saying here. Very plain language. He said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And then he turns to the centurion. He says, and I say unto you. No, he was still talking to his people. Excuse me. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. So that's the end of that paragraph. But now let's go back into the words of Christ here. That's what these studies are. And let's pull this apart. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, speaking of what the Roman centurion had said, I'm not worthy that you should, be, that you should even come under my roof. In other words, I trust that your word alone, just speak the word, Lord and my servant will be healed. You don't even have to come to touch him. That was the faith that this centurion was demonstrating. But what did he say right here after that? When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Jesus, and which is to say God, is capable of being surprised. Did you know that? Did you know that? And there's a reason I'm bringing this up. And this might, think, this might, sound, like, this might sound like it's reaching, okay? But it really isn't. It really isn't because there's a there's a there's a a very old debate that lies behind that, that um, it doesn't lie behind this but that this actually addresses you know there's people that believe that God knows absolutely everything including the future and therefore God knows everything that's going to happen and everybody's decision ahead of time and he knows he's going to go to heaven and he knows he's going to go to hell and there's absolutely no human free will because it's all a myth because God knows it all ahead of time which makes all of us just actors in a play basically following a script that we don't even know. Now that's a very common doctrine in, uh, in certain denominations of Christianity. It's not right. I'm not saying that it's a doctrine of devils and that it's going to send people to hell. I'm just saying that it, it influences the way that people think and the responsibility that they take towards God in a very negative fashion. Okay? 
This one verse addresses that because it's a debate. It's, and it's gone on for, for a, not a couple thousand years, but it's been going on ever since the Reformation. So for several centuries now, you know, is it all predestined? Is it all predetermined? Or does in fact God not know exactly what every single decision that we're going to make ahead of time? Does God not know what socks I'm going to put on three days before I put them on? Which is it? Is it divine foreknowledge of absolutely everything or is it human free will? Well, you say, well, you're really reaching to teach this off of that. No, 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 no. Let's read the words because again, it's all about the language. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Well, you don't, you don't marvel at something that you're expecting or that you already know. You, you, you don't, you don't open the door when Ed McMahon rings. Is he still alive? I don't know if he is or not, but he's always the word, the, the name that you associate with winning huge amounts of money in a contest. You know, when, when the doorbell rings and you go and, and, and answer the door and it's Ed McMahon standing there holding a giant oversized check for $200 million or for $20 million or something like that, what do most people do? Well, they marvel, right? Because they didn't see it coming, right? If you knew in advance, because you had divine foreknowledge from the time you were a small child, that on uh, you know, October 8th, 2018, uh, Ed McMahon was going to show up to your door with a check for $20 million, you'd be expecting it. You wouldn't marvel at all. You'd just be like, man, I wish that date would hurry up and get here so I can get some bills paid off. You know what I mean? There'd be no marveling. There'd be no surprise. There'd be no nothing. There'd be, there'd be none of that. Jesus marveled at the faith of this centurion. He didn't know that the centurion was going to come up and say that he might have, he might have foreseen the centurion's approach, but he evidently did not foresee the degree and the measure of the centurion's faith. Did he? Because Jesus marveled. And when I hear the word marvel, I imagine that showing on his faith. Jesus was a Jesus had a very cool spirit. And I don't mean that in a, in a slang way. I mean that he kept a very cool, unflustered spirit. OK, except for the whole driving the thieves out of the temple, you know, thing that wasn't very cool. But even so, he was completely under his own control. He was not giving vent to wrath. OK, but here he said he marveled. And so I imagine he might have even gaped at the centurion like, I don't believe. I can barely believe that I just heard this kind of faith communicated from a Gentile. And that's why he turned to his own people that followed him down off the mountain and said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And that's an indictment. That was an indictment against his own people that they had not demonstrated the same kind of faith that this Gentile who, for all we knew, might have been a worshiper of Mithra, the Roman god of war, one of the gods of war. Or, yes, one of the gods of war. But so it is. It's spelled out here. So God is capable of being surprised by our decisions. He's capable of being surprised by our actions. Now, so what's that mean? It means there's hope. That means that your entire life has not been predetermined. It hasn't been all written out uh, like, uh, like in Greek mythology. And I don't want to get into all of that. It, it hasn't already been written what you're going to do five years from now or how your life is going to end. Not all the details of it. There's room in there to make free will choices. And let me tell you, that is a ray of hope. 
Especially if you're grappling with something that is really plaguing your life and you're thinking, I'll never get free from that. Don't you dare believe that. Because the ending of your life has not been written. And you are still capable of surprising the Lord your God. That's a big, big deal. Such a huge teaching from just one little shoestring portion of Scripture that's just kind of hanging out there. And, and, and to, to most readers of the Bible, it doesn't really say all of that. They don't get all of that out of that. They're just like, oh, cool, a centurion believed in Jesus and a servant was healed. And then Jesus kind of jacked up his own followers. And then you move on along because you're trying to get your Bible reading quota in for the day. No, hey, dig this out of there, man. This vein runs very, very deep. The ending of your, of your life has not been written, not all the details of it. It has not been foreordained uh, where you will end up. It's up to you. And that's a very heavy teaching because it lays your the responsibility for your spiritual life squarely on your own shoulders. What's that mean? Does that mean that I'm saved by my works? No, 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 no. That is not all we're talking about. Salvation, and I say this often so that I'm not misunderstood. Salvation comes by faith alone. By faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's not one crying thing that a person can do to work for or earn their salvation. So don't let's not get those wires crossed. But your relationship with God from that point forward, it's on you. It's on you. How close to God do you want to be? How close to God do you want to be? Do you want to be one of those? Um, do you want to be a Sunday only believer with that kind of an appetite? Or do you want to be closer? Do you want to be closer? You want to follow Jesus down off that mountain? Maybe you heard something in a Sunday service and, and the Spirit of God touched you and it opened your eyes and enlightened your understanding. And, and, and it was like it was like daylight breaking through the clouds. Okay, that's awesome. But then when Jesus goes down off the mountain and you walk away from the Sunday morning service, is there a hunger? I want to be there for the Bible study. I want to come back for Sunday night. You know, I want to, I want to see what's coming next on Tuesday. I want to see what's, what's going to get preached on Thursday. It doesn't, doesn't matter who's preaching, does it, sir? What matters is that somebody's preaching. So it comes back down to appetite and it comes back down to personal responsibility. And there's precious little of that going on in America right now. And that's the very little of that going on in American churches right now. Hey, believers, take responsibility for your relationship with God. Grow it, nurture it, guard it with your life because it is your life. It has to be. That's your lifeline. It's not just your road to the kingdom. I mean, that's your lifeline to maintain sanity in what is an increasingly crazy world that we're living in. And I don't say that in the cliched sense. There's a lot of madness going around. There's a lot of social madness going around. There's all kinds of confusion that are absolutely plaguing people's minds. They don't know up from down, left from right, man from woman. So pick up your responsibility, brothers and sisters. That's, that's not a blast. That's not a plow. That's not a rebuke or a reproof. It's an admonition. It's for every single one of us. Pick up your responsibility. Your relationship with God is on you. How close do you want to be to him? I don't like being a fringe believer. Okay? And I don't like being a fringe believer. And there's reasons for that. Because the closer to the edge of things that you live, the more you're going to be tempted by it. And, and 
You know, let's and let's jump back over to the Old Testament for a minute, okay? And let's, let's tie it together. It might it might only tie together by a thin thread, but they do support each other. Let's go back to the Old Testament. And let's talk really quickly about a man named Lot. You know who he was? Lot was Abraham's nephew, I believe. He was a he was a relative of Abraham. And so uh, there was a dispute between Lot and Abraham because they were they were herdsmen. They were you know they lived an agrarian lifestyle. They kept herds, uh, flocks, if you were. I don't know if it was cattle or sheep or both. Probably both. And there was a conflict because of land and all of that. And so Lot decided, all right, well, rather than fight, you know, let's just split this area up. And I'm going to go. I'll tell you what. I'll take the well-watered plains. Okay. And then you can, you, Abraham, you can stay here in the land that we've been sharing up until now. I'll go down into the plains and take my herds and my people with me down there. Okay, so at its surface level, again, that doesn't seem like it's much, but what was down there? What was down there on those well watered plains? Well, there were a series, there was a bunch of cities there, including Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, the Bible says, pitched his tent towards Sodom. Okay, well, why is that important? Well, because the, the next time we come around and, 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 uh, and deal with Lot in any way in the Scripture, Lot isn't, doesn't have his tent pitched towards Sodom anymore. He's living in a house in Sodom. When you live on the... And why, well, why is that significant? Well, because Sodom was an exceedingly, incredibly filthy, wicked city. So much so, you know the account. God destroyed Sodom with fire out of heaven. He didn't even use a natural disaster. He sent a supernatural disaster to burn that city to the ground and to destroy the people that were in it. That was a huge thing. So what's the lesson there? The closer that you live to the edge of something, then the more you're going to hear from the other side. And the more it's going to resonate with you and it's going to vibrate the strings of your heart in sympathy and it's going to talk to you and it's going to lure you. I'm not saying that you can't resist it. I'm just saying it's just not a it's not a great place to live. And that's why we really encourage drawing as close to God as you possibly can, because if nothing else, it's the safest place to be. Appetite and responsibility. Let's bring it back to that. I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out. What was he saying here? He, was, he already saw the writing on the wall. He already knew that there are going to be Gentiles that are going to believe on me and that are going to sit down in the kingdom and they're going to eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, who is that? The Jews shall be cast out into outer darkness. This was Jesus prophesying that many Gentiles would ultimately come into the kingdom through their belief on the Son of God, Jesus. While those Jews who were unbelieving would ultimately be damned. Now, I'm very careful with the language here because I, I was very careful not to say unbelieving Jews because that makes it sound like all Jews were unbelieving. That's not the case, not by a million miles. There are many, many Jews that believed on Jesus in Jesus's time, in the time of the apostles and in time since. Okay, but the vast majority of them did not and still do not. And so he was making it clear that there was this, this marvelous turn of events. Let's put it that way. 
that the Gentiles, which never had the law, never had the temple, never had the priesthood, had nothing of the oracles of God, had nothing of God at all other than the spark of life and the breath of life in their lungs, that they would turn and believe and end up obtaining the kingdom. While the children of the kingdom itself, so many of them would end up being cast out because of their own unbelief. Jesus saw it coming. Jesus saw it coming. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. So let's bring it back up to the surface level teaching here. Faith in God pays. And faith in Jesus pays. And God answers prayer. Jesus answers prayer. And healing is still a very real gift that God gives to his people. It happens. And sometimes he even gives it to people who aren't his people, like this centurion. Like this centurion. When we come to God in faith believing, when we come to God standing on his promises, that's the kind of faith that God answers. Now, sometimes he doesn't answer it immediately. Sometimes there's a greater purpose to what he's trying to accomplish, and he'll use things as vehicles to accomplish his will. But if we come to him in faith believing, like the leper, like the centurion, that is a kind of faith that marveled Jesus and that in both cases, Jesus answered. Let's go ahead and bring it to a close at this time. We'll pick it up next week. Be at the will of the Lord in verse 14 of chapter 8 because there's some more really awesome stuff in this chapter and then we'll go on to, to chapter 9 and we'll see what God wants. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving